All right, let's take our Bibles. We're going to open to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the last part of verse 17. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. There, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, there's one thing about as we uh, uh, consider it today, and what we're looking at is that last part where we're looking at the sword of the Spirit. As we look, have looked at all the different pieces of armor, there's one thing that stands out differently about the, the in, implement that we're given today. And that is that this is the only offensive weapon that is in, used in this passage. No, everything else has been for protection, for the, the, the shield, the, the breastplate, the, the belt of truth, having the right footing with your feet uh, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Everything else has been for defense or good footing. This is the, finally he gets to the very last thing is the weapon, the thing that you use. And it's the only thing that he gives us is this sword. Now, the sword that he refers to here was a sword that was typically usually anywhere from 6 inches long to 18 inches long. It was used in uh, up-close hand-to-hand combat. It's not the big, long, double-handled, two-handled, uh, or two-handed sword that we talked about recently, but or last week, but it's that short one for hand-to-hand combat. Uh, combat. And as we said, it's the only thing that's given to us. And that makes sense. Because you know what? The Bible makes it very clear throughout it that, and especially in different places, like I think of Second Peter chapter one, where it says that it makes the claim that it really is all that we need. In in this life, in the scriptures, God has given us all that we need to be able to live that life that is honorable to Him, that brings Him glory, that that fulfills our responsibilities before Him. In fact, of Peter, in that second epistle in chapter 1, talks about God giving us His divine power. And how do we tap into that power? Through our knowledge of Him, our understanding of Him. And where do we find that understanding? In His precious promises. So it says, through the Word of God, His precious promises, we get the knowledge of God which gives us the power to be able to live out the life that He would have us to live. And so it makes sense that that really is our only weapon as we fight in this spiritual battle. Well, we're going to consider that here this morning and we're going to look at a couple different things. We're going to look at both the nature of the Bible and the use of the Bible in our daily lives and what exactly is the Bible and um, and not only what is the Bible, but how do we use it then in a very practical way. Well, as we consider here this morning, let's look first at the nature of the Bible. First of all, the Bible is a very amazing book. You will not find another book like this on the face of the earth. 
Um, I remember one time talking to an individual who was a Christian individual, but he has, had read uh, the, the Quran. And I remember uh, talking to him about that, and he said, well, the Quran, he says, it's, it's pretty much like the Bible. And I thought, well, no, it really isn't. Um, it, may, it might read similar as far as you know, written in an older book and that kind of thing, but it is not really like the Bible. You see, the Quran is the teachings of Muhammad, one person. Uh, the Bible is very unique. The Bible is an amazing book. It is, um, first of all, written over a time period of 1,500 years. It took 1,500 years to put together what we now hold and call our Bible. It was written by 40 different people. 40 different people involved and a huge variety of people. It was everything from kings to fishermen, from doctors to tax collectors, uh, shepherds, a uh, huge variety of people uh, that were involved in the writing of, of what we have as the Bible. And then not only that, but it also spanned, since it covers uh, you know, 1,500 years, it covers over 40 generations. You know, it's kind of amazing. When you think about people writing at different times, Moses, you know, 2300, 2600 B.C., and the Apostle Paul, 50s, 50s B.C., mid-50s, or A.D., I mean. Talk about your generation gap between that amount of time and this amount of time. And, and, and it just all fits together as one book. It it's it's an, has an amazing unity to it. It has 40 different uh, generations, over 40 different people involved in it, 1,500 years, spans three continents, um, uh, written on three different continents. And that's not being translated into. It means the actual events taking place and, and being written uh, in those three different continents. And so it's quite a span that it covers, and then also written in three different languages. Uh, Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament's in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there, here and there. And so there's three different languages that the, that the Bible is, is uh, crossing too. So it's amazing. You know, in our day, you'll find sometimes... Uh, a group of individuals or maybe just two people will get together and write a book on a certain subject. And maybe one will do one chapter, next will do another chapter, that kind of thing. But, but they're contemporary with one another. And they're meeting and they're discussing and they're talking about the layout of this book and how it's all coming together. The Bible, we have a, we have a, a whole bunch of different people involved in the writing of the Bible who did not have one another to talk to and to lay it out. But it's amazing how it just fits in such a unity within Scripture. Again, there is... Anybody ever tells you any other book is like the Bible or that the Bible is just another religious piece of religious literature, they clearly do not understand what exactly the Bible is. It is an amazing book. And why is it an amazing book? It's an amazing book because it is inspired. Because it is, as our passage states right here, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is... The Word of God. You know, all through the Old Testament, there are so many times where it's just labeled that. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says, the prophets would say, and then they would record it for us. Um, But when we get up into the New Testament, then it it actually looks back and it gives us a little bit more insight into just exactly how we got our Bible. Yes, people were involved. But even though people were involved, it was superintended by God. It It was delivered by God through those people. 
And the New Testament gives us some pretty amazing insight into that. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Ah, see right at the end of that? See what we got? Where we started. Remember, this is the only sword in our belt because it is enough. Notice what that passage says. That the Word of God is profitable for teaching and correcting, for doing those things in our life, for training us, so that we can do what? We can be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, contained within Scripture is everything that we need in order for us to be complete and to be able to be prepared for every good work that God has for us to do. That's why it's the only one. Now, why is it that? Because of that very first part of that statement. All Scripture is literally breathed out by God. Even though the Apostle Paul was writing it on paper, it was the breath of God that came out. Even though Moses was, they were etching it in a stone, it was the breath of God that gave us these words. Peter confirms this also. Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 20 of his second epistle, he says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, looking at Scripture, says, look, all Scripture comes in this way. It didn't come by man. It wasn't Moses writing down his thoughts and ideas. It wasn't Jeremiah giving his thoughts and ideas, or Isaiah, or any of these people. He says, they were literally carried along by the Spirit. The Spirit carrying them along in such, along in such a way that the words that they would write down are actually God's words and not their own. It's not even that God gave them a big idea and then they put it in their own words. It's that the words are God's words brought through these human authors. I love what it says in Peter's first epistle. In Peter's first epistle, we get to see a little glimpse of it in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. Now, I love that. That is just uh, really cool to me. The reason is, is because it says that these people that were prophesying beforehand foretelling our salvation that we experience now he says, those people in the past, those prophets that wrote about that, he said, you know what they did? They searched it. They studied it to see what it was talking about. When is this going to happen? Who is that going to be? And, and, and so the cool thing to me is that it's saying that these guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, the, the minor prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, all these guys, um, they studied their own writings. You know, I've written quite a few things. Um, the articles for the paper and stuff like that. I've written a lot of those. You know what? I've never gone back and read them. Or, or at least if I have, um, I've never studied them. 
And you know why I haven't studied them? Because I know what I meant. There's no mystery in there for me. There's nothing for me to dig into and say, well, why did I use that word? Because I'm the one that wrote it. I know what I wrote. But these guys, it says, these guys actually studied their own writings. Why? It's not their writings. It's not their words. Because this was the Holy Spirit carrying them along. And so when they wrote down what they wrote, it was actually God's Word on the page. So now they studied it. In fact, here's, here's, a, here's a really cool thought. You probably know their and understand their writings. I'm not even going to say probably. Definitely. You definitely understand their writings better than they did. Isn't that cool? Because they were writing about something that was given to them by God and it was something off in the future. And they're like, what exactly is he saying here? How is this, how is this going to take place? How can this happen? Who is it going to be? We are in the future looking back and, it's, and those things have already happened. And so it's kind of like that statement about hindsight being twenty twenty. We get to see it happen and we see, oh, look at what they said and then it happened in Christ here. And so now we got a very full understanding of it. Way more information than they had to work with. And so when you read Isaiah, when you study Jeremiah, if you study it, you're going to have a better understanding of it than Jeremiah did. Because, in fact, this passage goes on to, to, to discuss that. It says that they found out that they were serving us, not, not just themselves. And so these things were actually written for our sake more, more even than theirs. And so it, it's an amazing Word of God. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul was able to say this to these people. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the Apostle Paul tells them, look, we're so excited about your faith because when we preached, you accepted it as the Word of God, which is that's what it is. And so we have the Word of God. What do we know about that Word? First of all, it's inspired. It is the very Word's of God. But not only is it inspired, the other thing that we need to consider is that it is reliable. Oops, what happened there? Sorry about that. But we're back in business. We would have continued in business anyway, but it will be clearer to you, I think, with this, this way. But the Word of God is not only inspired, it is reliable. And what this deals with is, well, yeah, the Word of God is, was given, but, but how do we know that we still have it? Right? I've heard uh, so many people say this or arguments being made this way. In fact, uh, kind of the Mormon church uses this as justification for their, for their other books that they, that they added along the way. And um, they say, well, the, the Bible was reliable so far as it's been preserved, but it hasn't been preserved completely accurate. They're more than willing to tell you which parts are and aren't, but they say, oh, it's been corrupted down through time. So they added these other books. Well, uh, other people have said the same thing. Some people have compared it to like that telephone game. 
Have you ever played that game where uh, somebody whispers something in somebody's ear and it goes all the way around the circle and then it's kind of fun at the end to see what the last person uh, says when they, they say it out loud for the whole group to, to hear and it's something goofy? You know, uh, you know, it starts off with something about my mom sending me to the grocery store for a loaf of bread or something like that and, and it ends up something about a banana or something completely different than that. And... Um, and so they say, well, that's kind of what happened with the Bible. You know, the Bible's been around for, for a long, long time, a couple thousand years for the newest parts of it. And so over time, what's happened is that it's just been, you know, errors creeping into it and all that kind of stuff. It's like the telephone game. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. Great care was given and in copying and then later translating the Bible. And that's one, that's a good distinction to remember when you, take something from one language into the same language that's copying. It's not translating. In other words, you're not adding your own ideas. You're just writing it down word for word. And for those processes, even before the days of copy machines, they had very careful processes for that. In fact, they had uh, they took such great care that to write the name of God, they always had a separate pen just for writing the name of God. Uh, so these are people that were being very careful. And then not only that, but um, they would... Uh, Often, from what I understand, go through and then they'd finish like a page of it or whatever. They would go through and count all the characters on the page, frontwards and backwards. And the original and the copy had to have the same amount of characters, the same amount of letters on each page. And so there were some great um, uh, insurances that they put in place to make sure that they copied it accurately. Now, um, not only that, but even with that telephone game, it's not all that hard to clean it up some. We did this, I remember, with a youth group uh, many years ago now. We decided, we were studying this issue, and we decided to do it. And first thing we did was we played the telephone game a couple, few times, just for fun. And the goofy statements came out at the end, and we laughed, and we had a good time. And then I said, okay, now, let's make it our goal, rather than just have fun with it, let's make it our goal to actually get it from here to there without any mistakes. And you know what happened? It really wasn't very hard to get it from here to there without, without mistakes or without very many mistakes. But then we said, you know what? We're also hindered by some different things. We have to whisper. Let's get rid of the whisper factor. They didn't have a whisper factor back then in copying the Bible. So we're going to have this person is, these two people are going to go up and walk out of the room. You're going to tell the other person clearly and loudly what the statement is. Come then that person will come in and somebody else will go out and meet that person and they'll tell them where they can do it out loud and we went all the way around the circle that way and you know what? No mistakes. No problems. And then what if we do it even different? I'm going to give you... I'm not just going to say it so that you have to go on your memory. I'm going to write it down. Give it to you. You're going to go out, write it down for the next person. Write it down. And we went all the way around the circle and you know what? No mistakes. And we found out that when you're not playing it just to be a game, we found that it's actually very easy to keep it accurate. And you know what? That's exactly what we find if we, if we don't just think about the telephone game, but if we actually look at reality and history. That's what happened. Is that the Word of God has been handed down to us very reliably. We know and can say with total confidence that today I have the Word of God in my hand just as, just as back when it was written. And we know that because, well, occasionally... Occasionally we get more and more, we, get, we find another set of manuscripts. Like for example, when the Silver Scrolls, when they found the Silver Scrolls, they found, oh, let's find out, now we're going to finally find out what was in the Bible. 
Well, they found out that if you compare silver scrolls to the Bible, that well, same thing that was in the Bible. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls made huge, huge waves. Now we got these ancient documents dating way back. We're finally going to find out what's really in the Bible compared to the Bible that we have today, that's full of all these mistakes. And so they translated the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you know what we found out? Or they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls, and wow, it says the same thing today that it said back at the time of the. Dead Sea Scrolls when those were put into that into that cavern, and so we have that historical proof. Not only that, but we have um, uh, we have ways of testing these things. You know, I remember reading uh, "More Than a Carpenter" by Josh McDowell, and he talked about how he was speaking in a university classroom. I think there was about 400 people present, and he said that uh, he made the statement that the New Testament is more provably reliable than any ten sources of classical literature. And uh, a literature professor that was in the, in the auditorium laughed at him. And he asked him what he was laughing at, and he says that you would make such an audacious statement that the Bible is more reliable than what we the pieces of classical literature that we have. And Josh McDowell called him out on it. He said, well, give me a test. What's a test we can run him through? And the guy kind of stumbled around a little bit, and he said, "I'll, I'll tell you what. Let's use the one that our uh, that our armed forces use. I think it's the Air Force came up with this, if I remember correctly. And they have different ways that they look at the document. And so one of the ways that they look at the document is they say, how many copies, how many copies of the document do we have that we can compare one with another to see if they all say the same thing? And then the other uh, aspect is, how old of a copy do we have?" Because if we have something that's that, uh, if the oldest copy that we have is a thousand years from the time that it was actually written to the time this copy was made, well, the thousand years—that's a pretty big gap. But what if that gap was only a hundred years? That's a much smaller gap, much less amount of time for errors to creep in there and that kind of thing. And so, especially if you have a lot of copies to compare it to, and a small gap of time between when it was originally written and the older copies that we have, then you can have a very confident uh, approach that you what you're reading today is what was written exactly back then. Well, as we consider a couple of those things... Oh, brother, what's the matter with this thing? If we can <laughs> consider a couple of those things... Um, we, i got a couple of charts to show you that in the Bible we have... You guys don't need to keep seeing Lisa's fish that she caught. But I I have to hold it up because she won't touch the fish. So it's interesting to get a picture of it because I got I hold the fish in front of her reaching around and she holds the phone out like that just for us to get a <laughs> selfie. So it takes a little work to get a to get a thing. Maybe this is the thing. I'll quit using that thing. All right. So as we look at it, the number of ancient manuscripts, the, the, the New Testament has a, an incredible flood of ancient manuscripts. We have uh, almost 25,000 copies of ancient manuscripts that we can that we can look at. Now, they're not all complete manuscripts. Some of them are like maybe it's the Gospel of John or a part of the Gospel of John. But but still, when you get 25,000, we got very well documented uh, history of the New Testament. So we got 24,633 copies, ancient copies of the New Testament. Now, what is the, the, the closest? The closest ancient literature 
that gets closer to the New Testament is the Iliad. And if you look at the Iliad, that's the next one on there, 643 copies they have to be able to compare with one another. Sophocles has 193, Aristotle, 49, Caesar, 10, Plato, 7. So you can see it tapers down really fast. Bible, 25,000. <laughs> Iliad, 650. Right? There's a huge difference between those two things. But here's the deal. You know, nobody ever reads the Iliad and says, I, I wonder if it's what Homer wrote when he wrote it. Maybe some errors have creeped into the Iliad over time. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not even reading the Iliad. Maybe it's... You know, nobody does that. But there's only 643 of those to compare to see if we're reading the accurate thing. 25,000 of the New Testament. But then also, what about time? How much time has gone by? Well, when we look at it, we find that the New Testament, only 80 years. Our oldest documents date back to within 80 years of when they were first written. Virgil was the next closest. The closest document that we have, 300 years. Homer, 500. Caesar, 950. Plato, 1,250 years. Aristotle. I'm miswriting the number on there or something. But I'm not sure what Aristotle is, but it's got to be over Plato. And Plato's 1,250. You know, again, nobody looks at Plato and says, ah, no point in reading Plato. We probably don't even know what he said. The closest copy we have to when it was originally written was 1,250 years ago. But the New Testament... Just an 80-year gap between the original writing and the oldest manuscript that we have. And so that's some amazing proof. So when you, can, when you have 25,000 copies that you can compare one with another, and you have this small amount of time frame between how close we are to the original writings, you know that this book's reliable. It still says the same thing today that it said when it was written. In fact, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, he said this, It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. Especially is the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church, is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. And so our Bible is an amazing book. It is different than any other book in the world because of its authorship. It's inspired by God. It's also different than any other book in the world because we don't have any other ancient book that has the reliability provable that we have within the Bible. And so the Bible is this amazing book. Okay, so we got this amazing book. What do we do with it? How are we supposed to use it? When he talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about the Bible being our sword that we use in this battle, what exactly does that mean? I mean, we kind of have an idea how to use a sword, although I've got to admit, if you put one in my hand, I probably wouldn't fare too well with it. It's not something that I'm used to. Soldiers were trained in these kind of things. It kind of became part of them. Um, a hammer. I'm good with a hammer. A hammer's kind of part of me. I've held a hammer for years and years, used them daily. But a sword, not so much. How do we use this sword that God has given us? 
Well, as we consider it this morning, the first way that we use this sword is through what I would call inspection. Inspection. In other words, it's a, it's a look inside. And, and, and the Word of God has acted like this and been used this way in my life countless numbers of times that as I read through it and as I study it and I learn it, learn it, it examines me. Right? It, it kind of digs into me and it, and it shows me who I am and where I need to change. Just like those things that we listed in Second Timothy. It teaches me, it reproves me, it corrects me, it trains me as I spend that time before it. But it lays me bare. It opens me up before God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The sword of the Spirit, this Word of God, it says it pierces down into our very innermost being. It gets to the core of who we are. And it opens that up before God and before it does it before us as well. Because it's in reading Scripture that we see the places where we're growing and can use some encouragement. And it digs into those places where we're maybe veering off track and need to come back. It just highlights those things for us. It points those things out. And so the Word of God is used in a way where it, it kind of inspects what's going on inside of you. And it molds you. It, it changes you. And so we need to use the Word of God in that way. If, if we're not allowing the Word of God to, to pierce into our innermost being and spending that time being corrected and changed and encouraged, then we're not using the sword in the battle the way that God intended us to be using it. Well, not only do we need to use it in a way that is through inspection, we also need to use it in a way that deals with temptation. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 27, he had warned us, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. When we consider it here this morning, we look back at our best example of giving no opportunity to the devil. And the best example of that would have to be Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ went out into the wilderness. It says that he was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness for this purpose of being tempted by Satan. So he was going out there to be tempted, to be tested. Why? To show us that he would not fall. To show us that he was holy. Now, as he goes out into that wilderness to be tempted by Satan, Satan, he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Three of them are recorded for us. Three of the temptations. And with each temptation that Satan brings to Christ, Christ does the same thing. With each temptation... Christ quotes Scripture. In fact, all three of them from the book of Deuteronomy. And so, so Satan tempts Christ. Christ quotes Scripture. Satan tempts Christ. Christ quotes Scripture. Satan tempts Christ. Christ quotes Scripture. Each time. Now, here's the thing. Jesus could have said anything. And it would have been the Word of God, right? Because He is God. Not only that, is being inspiredly recorded for us through the pen of Matthew. So whatever he would have said would have been the Word of God because he is God, and it would have been 
recorded for us through inspiration. So that would have been the Word of God. So it would have been the Word of God no matter what He said. Even so, He still used the Word of God that we already had given to us in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. He used Scripture in that instance. Let me tell you this. If Jesus needs to use Scripture or decides it's best to use Scripture when confronting the temptations from Satan himself, then I definitely need Scripture to use for my temptations. And you know what? It's hugely effective. I find that when I'm struggling with a temptation, I like to memorize passages that deal with that particular sin or that particular temptation. I like to memorize them. Sometimes I've been known to write them down on maybe a card or, or, or something like that and, and just carry it in my pocket. And, and when I get a chance somewhere, I pull it out and, and, and just read through it and just think about what it's talking about. Think about what it says. Or think about verses that, that show success or promises of God's blessing if I go the, the route that I should go in those cases. And I found that as I, I find that when temptation gets brought my way, and I turn that moment of temptation in an opportunity to be transformed into God's way of thinking through memorizing His Word, you know what I find out? Is that Satan brings less to those temptations. Why? It only makes sense if you think about it. If Satan knows that every time he tempts you, it's going to drive you to the Word of God, then maybe he doesn't want to tempt you quite so often. Maybe you're going to pull back and kind of leave you alone for a while. In fact, the Bible does tell us that if we resist Him, He will flee. And that's what we look at. In dealing with times of temptation, the best thing that we can do is say, what does God say about this sin? I want to think the way God does about this sin. And so whenever that temptation comes up, I'm going to go to these verses. I'm going to go to these thoughts because these are God's thoughts. And use Scripture in those ways. Now, Jesus didn't use it in quite that way because His temptation was external, not internal. It doesn't, doesn't come from His own flesh. It's, it's not that He was allured to those things uh, because that would have been to betray God. But He is able to defeat Satan in those moments of temptation by using the Word of God. Well, not only do we need to use it as a matter of temptation, but we also need to use it to gain the proper perspective. We need to use the Bible for perspective. And this is, the, this is the kind of thing that where consistency really pays off. What are we doing when we, we have the Bible, when we're using it, we take it out and read it every day, that kind of a thing. What, when we dig in and study it, what are we looking to do? What are we gaining from that? What we're gaining from that is perspective. right? What we're trying to do is not just stumble on the right passage at just the right time, It's not that. What we're trying to do is gain, in our perspective, God's perspective. In other words, I want my worldview to be in line with what the Bible teaches. I want my priorities to be in line with the things that the Bible prioritizes. And so the more I can spend in Scripture reading it and studying it and learning from it, the more my perspective can match God's perspective. And I just see things the right way. You know, a lot of times when we fall to a temptation or a struggle, it's because we haven't been doing the work. It's because we haven't been 
constantly feeding on the Word of God, and that sets us up for a weakness. But we find if we constantly feed on the Word of God by personally reading, by coming out to church, going to youth group, coming to Sunday school, those different avenues that are available to us, then problem solved. Before we even knew the problem was there. You know what? I cannot tell you how many times I've had a parent come up to me and say, you know what? My teenager is having questions about this, about their faith. And very common, I turn and I say, you know what? It is such a bummer that they haven't been at youth group because that's exactly what we just spent a month talking about. Or people tell me, I'm having a struggle with this. And I'm thinking, you know, Sunday we dealt, dealt with that. Or two Sundays ago we dealt with that. Oh, they weren't there. Now, I'm not saying you should never miss church. There's things that might come up. You should seldom miss church. I will say that. We're supposed to not get in that habit of forsaking the assembly. But, but you know, there, there's so many things like that I, that I found that it's, it's amazing to me how many times somebody says, I'm having a struggle with this. Oh, uh, man, that was, we just went through that in depth in Sunday school. You weren't there. We went through that in depth. Youth group, you weren't there. In depth in church, you weren't there. That is such a bummer. That's what I'm talking about. It's not just those things. Those are very visible. But uh, also with our day, with our how much we're actually in the Bible by ourselves reading it. There's things that you wouldn't have struggled with it so much if you would have been prepared for that better if you would have been spending that time consistently in the Word of God or, or taking advantage of the, the venues or the avenues that are available to you that we have to... We, we are inundated. We have so many ways to get a better understanding of the Word of God. We just got to do it. We just got to be consistently at it, gaining that perspective. You know, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what we're trying to do. Not just find the answer at a moment, though that's important. We want to do that. But but allowing the Word of God to soak into us on a regular basis so that when we face those questions, we face those obstacles, those temptations, we are ready. Because we already have ingrained within us the Word of Christ, that heavenly perspective, that spiritual perspective, and this is how we use that sword in our life. By dwelling in it. Or having it dwell within us. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul would tell young Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. We need to be in the Word of God, learning how to apply it. There's so many bad ideas out there that give a scriptural reference. We've got to make sure that the scriptural references in their context actually support those things. And he says that's what we need to do. We need to be learning how to rightly handle the Word of truth. If we do that, then the Word of God is everything that we need to live that life that's approved before God. You know, one of the things that I did as I got thinking about this was I went through and I looked back through Scripture 
at where do we see Satan attacking? And where do we see Scripture giving us practical ways that if we have God's perspective on these issues, it'll protect us from the actual attacks of Satan? Because that's what this passage is about, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers. Where do we see him attacking? What's God's perspective on those things? The first one that I came across was Peter. Right, Peter, at this point, and in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus calls his disciples together. And the disciples are recognizing that the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, they're not going the same way. These guys are here. Jesus is going here. There's a, Jesus is bringing them to this point. There's a decision to make. Who are you going to follow? And Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some, some people think you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Some people think you're Elijah, one of the other prophets risen from the dead. All good guys, but not the Messiah. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter led the, the apostles, the other apostles in that decision. He was the first one to step up and say, you're it. You're the Christ. Right after that, you know what happens? Jesus begins to tell them something. But before this, He had not shared this with them. Now that they've come to this point where they're rock solid, you're the Christ, He says, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go and I'm going to be put to death. And now the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, no way. No way. He stands up and opposes Christ. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. <laughs> I get a kick out of Peter sometimes. He actually takes Jesus aside. Can you imagine that? I can see him grabbing him by the elbow. Come, come over here. <laughs> you know? This is not happening. This is not how it's going. This is the guy that just led the apostles into this big, big moment. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he's dragging Jesus by the elbow. No, no, this, this isn't how it's going. But he turned, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter at this mountaintop experience instantly is attacked by Satan and being overcome. Jesus says, you know what the problem is? It's your perspective. God's perspective is this cross is going to happen. This cross has to happen. Your perspective is, you're going to grab me by the arm and tell me, no, it's not. He says, you're, you're, Satan doesn't want it to happen. You're, you're working more in league with him. You're being overcome. And you know, our perspectives can be out of whack if we're not careful. We need to be making sure that, that our perspectives are God's perspectives. You know, I think there's so many different practical places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, we, f- we find them c- finishing a problem that they dealt with in chapter, uh, uh, in chapter 5 of the book of 1 Corinthians. 
In chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians, the church had a, an individual in their church that was living in, uh, in adultery and sexual immorality with, with another individual. And the Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, you've got to kick that guy out of church so that he learns his, soul, his soul's at stake here. You guys got to kick him out of church. This cannot happen. You cannot tolerate this. And so they do. They, they, vote, they call him up before the church, rebuke him for what he's done, vote him out of the church. We know that because in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Now, um, it was sufficient. The punishment that you guys, and he, and he mentions that it was by a vote, by a raising of their hands. He says, by the majority is the way he put it. This vote by the majority, when you kick that guy out of church, it worked. So what happened was, they kicked him out of church, he repented of his sin, and he came back to church. And now they're like, well, now what do we do? He still did this horrible thing. Now the Apostle says, look, Apostle Paul says, look, now you need to embrace him. Embrace him. He's repented. Welcome him back. Encourage him. Help him grow. Why? Notice what it says in verse 11 of chapter 2. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. He says, look, Satan is just itching for the chance while this guy's feeling down bad about what he did, and he should have, that's a godly sorrow that brings you to repentance. He says, if we don't take now and encourage that person and uplift that person, you know what's going to happen? He's going to feel consumed by that sorrow, and Satan will use that to destroy him. And he says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not going to let him get away with that. So we're going to embrace this person, welcome him back into church, encourage him, strengthen him, build him up. See, that's God's perspective on that deal. I think also 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he mentions that there's another place that Satan can strike, and Satan can strike at the leadership in the church. In fact, Paul's telling Timothy how to pick pastors for the church, and he says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And then he goes on to say, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. You know, that's really an awesome thing because he's just using a godly spiritual perspective to say, look, here's what can happen. If we put somebody, elevate them up into leadership before they're ready, they're an easy target for Satan and that will bring a lot of damage upon that individual and upon the church itself. We need to be careful that we don't put rush people into that kind of a position too fast before they have the spiritual maturity and the growth and before they're ready for it. Or these problems can happen. That's a weak spot, a vulnerable spot for Satan to attack. Um, in, in the same book, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we find the same kind of a thing dealing with widows. He's dealing with widows and he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows because he'd just been talking to them about the responsibility of first of all the families and then secondly the church in providing for widows. And they're putting them on an official role that they'd be taken care of by the church. And it says, for when their passions, he says, refuse to enroll the younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would 
I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Now, notice what he's doing here. Is in the early church, they had a real problem with uh, widows living in poverty. And so the church stepped up and said, you know what, the first responsibility is the family. If the family's unable to help completely, then the church needs to step in and help as well. And so they did. And actually, that's what led to the start of the deacon body, why, we, why churches have deacons, is to help look over those kinds of issues. And what happened was they, they were, well, who's a widow and who isn't? Who, who gets taken care of and who doesn't? And that kind of thing. And, and the Apostle Paul is telling them, look, here's one, one place where we could have a real problem. He says, when you have younger women whose husbands have died, don't put them on the list of widows. I don't think it meant that they didn't get any help whatsoever. But he said, you know what? They're not ready to be on the list of widows. They're not done with marriage and family and kids. And, and he says, you know what? What will happen is if we put those women on the list and make them a widow of the church, well, their desire is still toward marriage and desire toward having children. And, and that that's natural for them. That's, that's their time of life right now. And so if, if we're just working against all that, if we try to make something out of them that they're not ready to be. And so don't put them on the list of widows and consign them to that kind of a life. Let them marry. Have them get married, bear children, manage their households. Um, give them, let them have that life that they're really intended to have before God. No, notice what he says. If we don't, if we just put them on the roll and provide for them financially, then they're not going to be content with that. They're going to be tempted towards gossip and, and they're going to be tempted toward idleness when they should be involved in building a home and raising children. And they're going to be tempted toward these things. And then what happens? Then they do end up falling to that temptation. Then we've just created a problem that we have to try to fix as a church. He's just saying, look, that's, that's just not the right perspective here. And you see, that's the thing. When we read through the Word of God, there's so many practical places where God says, look, don't do this or give Satan a little in here. It gives him some leverage in your life. He did the same thing if we wanted to spend time going. We're not going to, but if we wanted to spend time going back and looking at things like marriage and family and, and all that kind of stuff. He, he talked about, you know, we need to have the perspective. God's perspective is especially in dealing with areas where it brushes against sexual temptation, that we should be in favor of marriage and even in favor of early marriage and young marriage. Why? Because there's, a, there's appetites and desires that go on within young people that, that form a huge temptation to them. But there's also a very appropriate place for that appetite. It's designed for that marriage relationship. And so we need to be in favor of godly and responsible marriages and marriages in our in our youth. And so God promotes those kind of ideas when you look through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is all about it. it says, you know what, we really set ourselves up before Satan if we don't have a godly perspective, a spiritual perspective on a lot of different issues in life. And that's the thing. The Bible's not just about finding the right verse for the right moment in life, it, it, it does contain that. But it's about building that view of the world that is God's view of the world. What things are important, 
what things are our priorities and what and how we need to conduct ourselves and perceive those different areas of life. And so perspective. But then lastly, lastly, we see that the way that we use the sword in this battle as well is through proclamation. In Second Timothy chapter four. Now, remember, that's right after chapter three, right? We, we not long ago toward the beginning of the message. Looking at the fact that the Word of God is inspired, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's the last two verses of chapter 3. He's, and he was saying that every word is God-breathed. Because it's God-breathed, it's profitable. It can reprove, rebuke, exhort. It can, it can correct and train and make you complete, thoroughly equipped for whatever God, all the good that God wants you to do. Now, because of that, we enter into chapter 4. And what does he say in chapter 4 and verse 1 through 4? He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So that's, these are not light words here. He's telling Timothy, I charge you, I command you, and I'm calling God as witness here before God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Now, here's the command. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, remember, what's the foundation? The foundation is that this Word of God is... God breathed that is the inspired Word of God. So it will make us what we need to be if we use it right. But then we also need to share it with others. And he says, you know what this world needs? He says, the Word of God. We need to proclaim the Word of God. Preach the Word. He says, be ready in season, out of season. In other words, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Whatever opportunities we have, take them for sharing that gospel. He says, the time is coming when people are not going to listen to the Word. What do we do then? Proclaim it. But what, but what if they don't listen to it? Proclaim it. But what if they find somebody else to teach them something else? Proclaim it. There isn't, there isn't a second option. This is the sword. It's the only sword in the sheath. This is the weapon that we have to use. And so we got to proclaim it. You know, it's just like uh, it's just like Jeremiah. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah, as prophets to Israel, got sent in, and God told them both ahead of time, "You're going to go and you're going to preach, and this is what you're going to preach. And here's the deal: you're not going to have one convert. Nobody's going to listen to you." I'm sure glad God didn't tell me that. That would be very discouraging. But that's the task that God gave them, so that's the task they have to do. Both of them were faithful to the task. You know what? God was right. Nobody listened to those guys. And in the end, when Israel is about to get carried off into captivity, you know what? God didn't say, okay, Isaiah, go, and if they don't listen to you, then I'm going to send Jeremiah. They'll listen to him. Or, or okay, you didn't want to listen to Jeremiah. Well, okay, how about we give you a different message? In fact, Jeremiah, they were kind of given that option. Tell us something else. Speak something better to us. And they said, no, this is the message from God. God didn't give him another one. You know what? The fact of the matter is our nation was built on the foundation of Christianity. 
But if our nation gets to the point where it doesn't listen to the word of God, do you know what the answer is? Proclaim the word of God. And our culture around us begins to shift, and like sand, they do. When our culture around us begins to shift and look at things in a different way, do you know what we have to do? Proclaim the Word of God. There's a reason that the Bible calls us the salt of the earth, and there's a reason that the Bible calls us the light in this dark world. And it's not because we're going to go with the changing times. It's because we're going to stand within the light of Christ. And we need to do that both as individuals and as a church. So this sort of the spirit that God has given us to use is obviously His Word. It's an inspired Word. It's a, it's a reliable Word. And it's used, how do we use that in battle? Well, as we look throughout Scripture, we see that we use it in several different ways. We use it in, in a way that is good for inspection, for, for examining what's inside of us. Why? So that we can change that. For It'll give us strength in our times of temptation so we don't go the wrong way. It'll give us perspective and God's perspective so that we know what is the right way. And it also is the message that we need to proclaim to our generation. 